Psalm chapter 8. Uh, uh, while I was in seminary, I ha- had um, what was called shepherding groups. Shepherding groups were uh, these seminary professors had to essentially build a relationship with a few students where they would form us spiritually. We didn't want to produce a bunch of people who were mere heads and no hearts. And so they had shepherding groups where the professors would disciple a few students throughout their years during the seminary. I had a professor, Dr. Ware, Dr. Ware, Bruce Ware. I loved to meet with him. Uh, but one night he was telling us the story as we were over at his house. He was telling us about an evening where he bent over to pick something up, and suddenly his heart started beating at like 150 beats per minute. Uh, he didn't know what happened. His body was overall pretty healthy, but his heart, his pulse, was wrong. His body had its strength. He was in good health overall, but his heart had the wrong pulse. I think Christianity can often be the same way. We can have all the right organization. We can pass the right um, phrases to one another. But each, you and I, each of us, can have a wrong pulse beating in our hearts that moves us when we gather week in and week out. So the question I want to ask at the outset of this Advent series is, do we crossroads have an Advent pulse? Do you, brother or sister, have an Advent pulse? Does your heart beat for what Advent makes it beat for? There are a number of competing pulses uh, in the kingdom of those that claim Christ. We know Catholics have their Mass and sacraments. The Orthodox have their icons. I think the Protestants have their busyness. You should say, we have our busyness. In various ways, our hearts beat at a pulse to show God off in ways that He has never commanded. So my question this morning is, do we have a pulse that matches the pulse of Advent or the pulse of our Lord? Which means we have to ask another question. How does God display His glory? What is God's pulse to bring glory to himself. Where is God displaying his strength in human history? How does God show off? In the vernacular of the teens, we might say, how does God flex? What does it look like for God to show up in the world? Because I think what our pulse should look like to be an Advent pulse is to be the rhythm of God's pulse when he displays his strength. So we have to ask the question, how does he do that? And what should be strange to us is if you look down at verse 2, you're going to see a really strange way in which God shows off his glory. Look at the verse. David is relishing in the glory of God because he discovers God's strength. And he finds God's strength in an absolutely unusual place. The mouths of babies and infants. Psalm 8 is kind of a shameful psalm for Israel. It's about a time when Israel couldn't save themselves, as Brother Nate read earlier. Saul couldn't slay Goliath. Israel's army was too afraid to face Goliath. No one could show up to fight Goliath. And so this psalm is commemorating the fact that where no one else could triumph, God had to send a baby to kill a giant for them. David was leading in writing this song. He's leading Israel to sing that the foundation of Israel's kingdom wasn't their army, wasn't the wisdom of their king. It was rather a child. It wasn't their Torah. It wasn't their ceremonies. 
God had located Israel's strength in a child. It'd be a bit like if I were to get up this morning and say, hey, last night, Lauren and I had somebody break into our house. So I went and I grabbed my family, and we got into a closet, and we hid together, and then we sent knocks out to confront uh, the robber. If I ever tell you that story, please remove me. I'm not fit to lead the church. But it's a strange thing to sing. Yeah, our one-year-old defeated the robber. I mean, that's what we're singing this morning. That's what Psalm 8 is singing. The child took on our foe because we couldn't do it ourselves. The pulse of this psalm is that it praises God because he demonstrated his glory in the context of human weakness. That's what it's singing about. The sky is so great, what is man? God has chosen for his glory to show up in places where human beings are incredibly weak. So this morning, let's put our fingers on our wrists to check our pulse. You don't have to literally do that, but metaphorically, let's ask ourselves, can we celebrate God where we are weak? Can we see God at work in the places where you and I are most inadequate? Remember John the Baptist? He must increase, I must decrease. Paul, God didn't remove the, the thorn that Paul would learn it's God's grace that is sufficient, not Paul's strength. See, Advent is about God's display of his glory through human weakness according to God's promises to bring about the rule of his king. Let me say that again. This is what I think Advent is about, and I'm getting it from Psalm 8. Advent is about the display of God's glory through human weakness, according to God's promise to bring about his king. One more time. Advent is about the display of God's glory through human weakness, according to God's promise to bring about God's king. So I have the privilege of kicking off our Advent series, even though it's not officially Advent, but we thought we'd spend a few more moments together through the end of the year to reflect on this pattern of Scripture together. So up until Christmas, we're going to reflect on this pattern as it culminates in the arrival of Jesus Christ. Now let's back up and do a little head work because I want to ask you this question because you're in a context where what I'm going to say this morning some of you might scoff at. Some of you might go, why in the world would anyone ever scoff at that? I agree, I don't know. Um, but some might. So here, let me, let me ask this question first. Is it right to teach that Psalm 8 is about David and about Jesus? Is it right to teach that Psalm 8 is about David and about Jesus? This is the Old Testament. Is it wrong for me to tell you from Psalm 8, that this is about David and it's about Jesus. By doing that, am I neglecting the literal interpretation of the text if I tell you that Psalm 8 is both about David and Jesus, even though they didn't know Jesus' name yet? Am I doing what some might call spiritualizing or allegorizing the text? Some of you are going, I have no idea why that matters. Of course it's about David, of course it's about Jesus, but beware. In America, there's a tradition that if I jump to Jesus in the Old Testament, I'm spiritualizing or allegorizing this passage. So I have to ask the question, can I teach you that this psalm is about both David as well as about Jesus? Why are we doing this? If theology was a house, in the 20th century, we gave a lot of attention to organizing the home. 
right? The, the clothes go here, the utensils go there, towels go here. Uh, we did this with our theology, and it's technically called systematic theology. If you grew up in church in the 20th century, you're used to a lot of topical teaching because we love to organize our systematic theology, and there's a place for that. Uh, but there's more to theology than the systematics. That, that is, before systematic theology, there's what we call biblical theology. Systematic theology says, what does the Bible say about this topic? What does it say about man? What does it say about woman? Our catechism question was a systematic theology question. Uh, what, does it say? what does it say about this? What does it say about that? Biblical theology is the question of how does the Bible view the relationship of its parts? How is the story unfolding? That is, not only are we asking what does the Bible say about X, Y, Z, we're saying, why did God choose to do it this way? If systematic theology is about organizing the house or the rooms in our house, biblical theology is about knowing what room is for what purpose. And that's important. You need to know what the bathroom's for. You need to know what the kitchen's for. You need to know what the living room, the bedroom's for. We don't just want to have everything in the right place. We need to understand how all of it functions together to unpack what God is doing. So what I mean is, it does us no good to know how to organize our kitchen, how to organize our bathrooms, if we don't understand what those rooms are for. In understanding Psalm 8, this means that I'm not only to tell you that this is a worship song for the people of Israel led by their king, I have to tell you why this psalm about King David is necessary in light of God's larger purposes. Systematically, this psalm is a worship celebration. Biblically and theologically, it is a prophetic announcement about what God is going to do for the world through Jesus Christ. Those are two different things, both good and necessary, but we need both. It is about David. He's leading Israel in worship. But it is so we would get a glimpse of what God is going to do for the world and for you and me through Jesus Christ. Let me give you a little more background to the Psalms. Uh, uh, I, a couple years ago, taught through the book of Psalms, and for some of you, you remember, the book of Psalms has a shape. It's not 150 best hits of Israel. It's actually telling a story. And you can see the story most uh, clearly if you look at what's called the Seam Psalms. Some of you remember, the book of Psalms is made up of how many books? Five books, 150 chapters. 150 chapters are divided among five books, not ten, five, five books. And uh, Psalms 1 to 41 are book one. Psalms 42 to 73 are book two. Uh, Psalm, no, sorry, uh, Psalm 42 to Psalm 72 are book two. Psalm 73 to 89, book three. Psalm, um, where did I end? I said 73 to 89. So Psalm 90 uh, to 10, I had it written down, 106 is book four, and then Psalm 107 to 150 is book five. And you can see where Psalms is going if you read those seam Psalms. For example, if you go to Psalm 72, you're, you're welcome to go right now if you want, and you look at the very last verse, what you'll see is that's an editorial comment telling the reader that the Psalms or the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Because books one and two focus specifically on Israel's first Davidic king. And so the Psalms are telling you that books one and books two are primarily following his rise and fall. At the end of Psalm 72, we're told that the prayers of David are ended. 
Psalm 73 opens with an anger, uh, frustration, with a wickedness that's taking place in Israel. They eventually, by the end of book 3, end up in exile. So book 4 opens with Moses. Why is Moses significant when the people of Israel are in exile? Well, he led the first exodus. So book 4 is the promise of a future exodus. And then in book 5, another David shows up on the scene. The David of Psalm 110, which the book of Hebrews tells us this, this is the Psalm 2 king that they are looking forward to who has finally come uh, to reign. So Psalm 8 then is in book 1, which means it's looking specifically at examples from King David's life. Psalms 3 to 7 are focusing on David's enemies. You know, Psalm 3, the the title tells us that he was uh, fleeing from Absalom. And so from Psalm 3 to 7, you have David lamenting the enemies that are surrounding him. But in Psalms 8 and 9, these two psalms are more triumphant. David has experienced a victory. Look down with me at Psalm 9, verse 3. Psalm 9, verse 3 says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. So Psalm 9 is, David has found victory, has triumphed over those opposing him. It's the same for our psalm in Psalm 8. If you look at verse 2 again, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your enemies, uh, the, the, or because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. So important for our psalm is to understand that it is paired uh, with Psalm 9, and they are psalms about David's triumph over his enemies. Specifically, Psalm 8 and 9 are about David's defeat of Goliath. You look down at the title to Psalm 9, verse 1. You have that strange phrase, the Muthleben. Uh, the Jewish tradition tells us that that's a reference to Goliath, the death of the champion, Goliath. Uh, So Psalm 9 celebrates the death of the champion Goliath. Psalm 8, verse 1, you'll notice in our title that it's called according to the Giddith. The Giddith would have been an instrument uh, from Gath, which would have been Goliath's hometown. It's almost mocking um, the Philistines uh, with a song played by an instrument from the town of their defeated champion. So Psalm 8, then, is David's theme song in his triumph over Goliath. Rocky has Eye of the Tiger, right? Top Gun, Highway to the Danger Zone, uh, the Spider-Verse, What's Up Danger, the Mighty Ducks, We Are the Champions. David has Psalm 8, is how this is working. It's the soundtrack of David's triumph over Goliath. And I wonder if the pulse of this song matches our pulse this morning. So let's look at it together. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You notice, if you look down at verse 9, what do you see? It's the exact same line. These are the bookends. The psalm is rejoicing in praising God in his name. But specifically, David is aware that God has acted not only as his Lord, but the God of his people. This is a, the corporate people, people of God who are enjoying victory together that is overflowing in God's praise. David commends the name of the Lord. He commends it for two reasons. The name of the Lord is not like, was it in Harry Potter that no one could say the word Voldemort? Everyone was terrified of the name. It just meant evil and death. Not Yahweh. Yahweh's name is mighty triumphant. Our God is not dead. He's alive. 
David says not only is his name a majestic name, look at where it's a majestic name. It's not merely in Israel. It's not over in Philistia. It's not over in Egypt or in America. God's name is great in all the earth. There is no place where the creation does not scream, Yahweh is mighty. His name is great. As Brother Nate read uh, the story of David and Goliath, you notice David didn't win because he had a sword. He said before the battle he would win not because he had the right weapon, but because of the name of the Lord. It's ironic, I think, is what, what Samuel's bringing out there is that the guy who had his head cut off was fighting a guy who didn't have a sword. How did that happen? The name of the Lord is great. David wants to exalt his name. What's interesting is the the last line of verse 1, your translation probably says something like, you have set your glory uh, over the heavens or above the heavens. But the Hebrew isn't an observation, it's a command. It's an imperative. David says to God, make your glory bigger. Lift it up higher. Let more people see it. The creation can't contain our praise. Your name is great in all the earth. God, take your glory up. We've seen how vast the cosmos are. If we could get beyond the cosmos, let your glory shine there too. You're worthy of that, God. David wants God to show off. He wants His excellency to be even more visible than it already is. And I want to say for a moment, brothers and sisters... That's what our pulse is as Christians, right? God, show off. God, be the only explanation for the things that take place in my life. Don't let this come back to a comment to me about how well I've done. Let what people see you doing in my life bounce off of me so that their eyes go up and see you. That's Christian worship. Don't help me feel good. It's God gets seen. God, be noticed by our church. God, let the world see you brighter because this church exists. Let our lives live in such a way that act as a mirror so that your brightness is what they behold, not us. We don't want people talking about Crossroads Fellowship Church. We want people talking about the God of Crossroads Fellowship Church. This is the true heart of Christian worship. The Christian doesn't need his name to be praised. Spurgeon said, that church which the world loves most is sure to be that which God abhors. We don't want to be confused with God. We want people to see, we want to be a conduit of His grace to the world so that people, when they encounter us, they're not singing our praises. They're saying, wow, who is their God? I want to know their God. That's what we are jealous for. Let God be seen, enjoyed, beheld all over the earth, and above the heavens. That's hard to do. How do we do that? What does it look like for God to show up in all the earth? We see God's brilliance in the stars. That's what uh, our, our brother was preaching about last week, Dr. Harvey, when he was talking about general creation, right? Everybody can see God's invisible attributes uh, since the foundation of the world through the things that are created. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. We see the brilliance of God in the created things. But in the context of David's prayer, how does God answer such a request to set his glory above the heavens? If the stars aren't enough for David, what could David possibly be rejoicing in God doing 
to show off his glory, it's there in verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. David is shocked in this psalm because the place where God's strength is captured, the, the foundation upon which God's glory rests in Israel is a child. That's what, what's overwhelming him here. Established strength speaks of the foundation of something. And the foundation of God's strength in Israel, what David is saying here, is David is not flexing the might of their armies. He's not flexing the strength of their government. He's not, flink, uh, he's not flexing billionaire ph philanthropists or CEO church leaders. What David is getting at is that God has chosen in Israel to decisively and meaningfully display his victory through human weakness, specifically in David's case, through a baby. When God wants to defeat Israel's enemies, he doesn't use their armies, he uses a child. That's not how you go to war. But apparently God can win wars that way. God wanted to overthrow the Egyptian superpower. Pharaoh couldn't kill a baby. A baby that was delivered to him in a basket down a river ended up being raised in his own home. You imagine if our national anthem ended this way? Over the land of the infant and the home of the child... We don't sing that. That doesn't feel strong. That's not glorious, but that's what David's written. Who is Israel? There are people who cower behind babies, but guess what? God uses babies. He uses them to defeat his enemies. Well, what is David referring to? Why is he reflecting on, on babies so much here? Because of the passage Nate read earlier in 1 Samuel 17. Did you notice four times... The skepticism about David was that he was not a man. He was a child. He was a youth. I'll read some of the verses again. 1 Samuel 17, verse 33. King Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. 1 Samuel 17, verse 42. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth. 1 Samuel 17, verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, whose son is this youth? 1 Samuel 17, verse 58, whose son are you, young man? Samuel is repeating that narrative point over and over in his narrative to drive home the point that Israel gets delivered, God triumphs over Goliath and Philistia, not through Saul, not through his military strategy or the courage of Israelite soldiers. God overthrew Philistia by raising up a young child. That's all God needed. So David writes in verse 2, God set your glory in the heavens, that's what he writes in verse 1, and then he rejoices I can't believe it, Lord, out of the mouths of babies and infants. He's saying, through me, you have established strength. You have triumphed over your enemies through me, a young man. So I say this morning in regards to Christian pulse, Christians are zealous for God's glory 
in the ways God has revealed himself to show off human weakness. God does not need you to be big for him to be strong. The scripture shows time and time again, God is never disappointed with us for being weak. He is disappointed in us for thinking he can't use us in our weakness. He says to Moses, I know you can't speak well. I made you that way. And that's what David's reflecting on here. But brothers and sisters, our position is even worse than Israel's, isn't it? Our king, we're not boasting merely in a young king. Our boast is in a crucified king. And that's exactly Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are strong. God chose what is low, I'm sorry, uh, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you're in Christ Jesus. So I ask with this second point, can you celebrate, can your heart pulse and beat for God's glory where you're weak? That's, that's what Advent takes. That's what Advent's about. It's about realizing we can't do anything. In fact, somebody had to be crucified on our behalf. Do I question the whole wisdom of God upon which his saving work rests? Do I need something stronger to keep me interested in what God is doing through the church? God did not choose David because Saul failed. God did not choose Israel because, or God did not choose David because Israel failed. The plan from the beginning of time was that God was to use David so that Israel couldn't boast in themselves. Why? Because it's about God's glory, is what David's saying. God has built his work in human weakness so that he would get glory, not us. So when Advent, as a pulse, beats in a church, it's when we want to be a people where the community says the only explanation for what's going on in that church is who their God is. We can't explain why else they are who they are. It isn't because they're all alike. It isn't because they all have the same interests. There's a supernatural work going on in there. The only thing we can think of is their God must be real. It's not because we're strong or compelling. It's because God uses the folly of a cross to gather people to himself. But if we're honest, we feel the pressure, I think. We need to make God look compelling. We need to show the world that uh, we can be just as wise as they are, that we can be just as, just as creative or just as entertaining. God is only compelling to the world if the church looks sophisticated, or God is only compelling to the world if we have it all together, or God will only be compelling to the world if our worship impresses the ears. But I think as Ray Ortland said, no one can give at once the impression that he himself is clever and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. Do you see how, how incompatible those statements are? If we are busy trying to show the world that we're impressive, how can we point our world to Christ? What need would we have of Christ if we were impressive by ourselves? No one can give at once the impression that he himself is clever and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. 
So friends, the good news there is you don't have to be strong or get your act together to come and hope in Jesus. In your present weakness, Christ is sufficient. Go to Him. Let's look at verses 3 to 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You notice David does not think that God is for mankind because we are great in and of ourselves. The skeptic often will mock Christianity and they'll say, uh, Christians are so narcissistic because they assume that God sees man as significant in ourselves. Because of how great the cosmos is, man must be so important to God. There must be something about us. And David is saying the exact opposite. No, it shocks David that God is preoccupied with us. David rightly acknowledges we aren't the greatest thing in existence. He says in verse 3, I look up. There's so many bigger and better things than us in the world. The heavens are vast and great. Man is small. And it's exactly the, that, for that reason that David is shocked. But David is still reflecting over his victory. Why did God use a child to overthrow his enemies? Why did God use David to triumph over Goliath? Why does it even matter to him? And he answers in verse 4 in the way that he asked the question. Verse 4, we typically take to refer to all of mankind, and there's a sense in which that is true. That is, we tend to take verse 4 as, what is all of humanity that you care for us? And we typically understand, we make that connection, because the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for man is Adam, right? We know that when, when God calls um, Adam, Adam, that was the Hebrew word for mankind, so it could specifically be referring to Adam. It could be also referring to corporate humanity. The problem here is in verse 4, that first man isn't the word Adam. It's a different word. It's the word Enosh. So what David says at the outset of verse 4 is, what is Enosh? And so I ask you the question, well, what is Enosh? Who is Enosh? Listen to Genesis 4, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For Seth said, God's appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain had killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Enosh is the son of Seth. Seth is the third child of Adam and Eve. And this is the line of offspring that is given after Cain, the corrupt seed, kills Abel. And so this line from Adam to Seth to Enosh is a line of hope through which God's offspring promised in Genesis 3.15 would come and crush the serpent. Remember Genesis 3.15? I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman. That is, there's going to be a war now going on. After the deception of Eve, the serpent and those who align with him will be at war with those who trust in the promise to Eve. What's the promise to Eve? There will be enmity between the serpent's offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will bruise the serpent's head serpent will bruise his heel. 
In other words, what is the answer to human sin right in the outset of Genesis 3? God mercifully promises a child will come who will crush the head of the serpent. So what David is saying is that there is a line from Eve through him that is a line of promised offspring through which God is planning to crush the serpent in his plans. Enosh, Seth, Adam. David is going, God, why would you even make these promises? David, remember what he did to Goliath? He didn't have a sword. He took Goliath's sword. He cut off his head. There's allusion back to Genesis 3.15. The, the offspring would bruise the head of the serpent. In our psalm in verse 2, David just rejoiced that God uses children to silence his, and in the Hebrew here, it's a singular enemy. It's a related word to enmity. So you could say the one at enmity. That is the serpent behind all of God's enemies. So I think what's happening here, when David in verse 4 says, what is Enosh, the son of Adam, he's calling to mind the line that Hebrews would have known about. Oh yeah, Adam. He had a son named Seth, who, who is the line of promise because Cain killed Abel. Seth had another son, Enosh, and that's at the time when everyone began to call in the name of the Lord. And what David is doing, he's seeing all those themes, and then he's saying, God, it's happening again. You've done it again, this time in me. I, David, am the child that was used to crush Israel's enemies. And this is exactly what God links to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David says, on your throne forever, you will have a son who will do this fully and finally. All that to say, what David is realizing is that God has so done this because God made these promises back in Genesis. David himself wasn't mighty. You notice it wasn't, sometimes we teach the story of David as, well, he, you know, he fought a lion or he fought a bear because he was strong even as a shepherd. But you've noticed when Nate read that, even David says, it wasn't I who, who defeated those things. I'm not the one to go out there and win because I've fought lions and bears. His point in bringing up the lions and bears was that God delivered him. The point was not that David was strong as a shepherd. It was that God was faithful to him when he was a shepherd. God didn't let him get harmed. And so he's not saying, I can go out there because I've fought these things. He's saying, I can go out there because God's fought for me. And he'll do it again. Because I trust in the name of the Lord. So David's going, God, why have you done this through the mouths of babies and infants? You've overthrown your foes. Because you made the promise back in Genesis. The promise line. And we know he's thinking of Genesis because look at the rest of the psalm. Why, why, the rest of the psalm is a reflection on Genesis 1. So, so all that to say, Christians are jealous for God's glory in the place of our weaknesses because God has made promises. What's the fourth thing he's going to do? To bring about his king. Right? And that's what verses 5 to 8 are telling us. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths and the seas. There's the familiar picture of Genesis 1. We're going to make man in our image. He's going to be made in our likeness. He's going to be crowned with glory and honor. He's going to have dominion over everything that we've made. David's reflecting on Genesis 1. Looking back there, Adam and Eve were vice regents, king and queen over the creation. 
glory, honor, dominion, all things handed to them, that Adam and Eve and their children would rule the creation, that you and I would rule over the creation. But we know how that went. They failed. And so David now reminds himself that he, he now stands in the place as another Adam. The uh, Adam experiment failed. Uh, the, the Noahic experiment failed. Uh, on and on, the, the fathers failed. So now God is doing it again through David. David is this great king, this offspring. He is the one who now stands to have dominion over this new Eden, the promised land. He's rejoicing that God is doing that in him. As king over Israel, they will be the nation that will reverse the effects of the fall. From there, they will extend the borders of Israel all over the globe of the earth and become the perfect temple nation through which the nations will worship, will worship Yahweh. But you and I know what takes place in book two of the Psalms, Psalm 51, where David famously prays, Create in me a new heart, O Lord, because we know he fell into sin with Bathsheba, just like Adam, just like every one else. This gets back to that heady question I asked at the beginning. How can this psalm be about King David and Jesus? This is why we need biblical theology. This isn't just a psalm for you and I to worship. This isn't just for you and I to remember that King David was Israel's king. This is to shape what we are expecting to happen when Jesus arrives on the scene. Because even though this psalm is about David... How does the New Testament interpret this psalm? Can you flip with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2? I want you to go there. I want you to see it for yourself. I want you to understand I'm not reading Jesus into this text. The New Testament reads Jesus into this text. Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 5. Israel needed more than a David who could kill Goliath. Israel needed more than the killing of Philistia. They needed a king who could repair their hearts. And so if we look at Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5, the author of Hebrews tells us while this psalm was about David, it actually prophesied of, prophesied of someone else. Verse 5. It was not to angels that God has given dominion or subjected the world to come? In other words, what he's about to... He's making the argument, Jesus is going to rule the new heavens and the earth, not angels. And so he's going to say, how do we know that? Verse 6. It's been testified somewhere. I love that. He doesn't remember the reference, maybe. What's the somewhere? Psalm 8. And David's celebration of God installing him as king to rule over Israel. The author of Hebrews says, this proves it's not angels who rule the world to come. It's a God-man, a king with human flesh. And he gets all that from Psalm 8. And he then argues, why would, God, why would Jesus put on human flesh? To become weak. To become weak. To, God has chosen to establish his, thing, his strength through human weakness. That's the path to crown and glory. The, the path to, 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 to glory and honor, the crown of glory and honor, was that he became human to die. And save his people. And so by doing, he is enthroned. He now has the dominion that you and I need. Which means, as Eric Abuao said two weeks ago, we don't merely need or want. It's not simply a Christian pulse to have Christ's atonement. 
We're saying we want a king other than ourselves. I want somebody else to tell me what is right in this world. I want somebody else to tell me my sin is bad and needs to be repented of. I want Christ's holiness to dictate how I live my life. I want Christ's love to be how I treat people in my local church. I want what Jesus loves to be a Christian, to have a pulse of Advent in our heart, is to say not only do we need a priest, we need a king. We need him to rule for us. That is the pulse of Advent. God, be glorified in the face of our failure. Keep your promise and bring about the rule of King Jesus in our lives. Georgia, I thank God, has Brock Bowers. The NBA has LeBron James. Soccer has Leo Messi. The Americans have Leo Messi. None of them even compare. The church has Jesus Christ, a crucified king. And it is there in Christ's single act, embodying human weakness, that God's promises to the world have been made yes. So we look for God to act. Not in all the places where, God, where the world expects to see strength. We look for God to work through the foolish preaching of a crucified Christ. Because that's what he's promised to do. That's what he did in a small way through David but we have a much better glimpse than what he had. We know Christ by name. His name is Jesus. So I ask, do our hearts pulse this way? Israel had to sing a song about a child being used because all their men were cowards. I wonder if our pride prevents us from singing that Christ is sweet. Do we have to turn church into being about what we can do for him? Or is it enough for us to remember what he has done for us because of God's promises? Let our hearts pulse in our weaknesses and rejoice that God is fit, has chosen to display his glory there. Let's pray.